Hi, thanks for joining us at Seen and Unseen Aloud. This is where you get to listen to a curated collection of the editor's top picks of our recent articles. For when you need to be eyes-free or hands-free, but still want to discover the seen and unseen. Why We Make Kings by Ian Bradley At the most solemn moment of King Charles III's coronation on the 6th of May, the Westminster Abbey Choir will sing Handel's thrilling setting of words from the first chapter of the first book of Kings. Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet anointed Solomon king. It provides a reminder that the anointing of the monarch with holy oil is carried out in direct imitation of a practice described in the Bible in connection with the inauguration of the kings of ancient Israel. This is not the only link which the coronation will make with stories found in the Bible. Legend has it that the stone of destiny on which Charles will be seated when he is crowned started life as the pillow on which Jacob slept when he had a dream of the ladder leading up to heaven as described in Genesis. Jacob set the stone up as a pillar to commemorate the place where God had talked to him. Later stories identify it as the pillar beside which Abimelech was crowned king of Israel and King Josiah made his covenant with the Lord to keep his commandments and statutes. The theme of monarchy looms large in the collection of books making up the Hebrew Bible, which tells of God's dealing with the chosen people of Israel and forms the Christian Old Testament. The word king occurs 565 times and kingdom 163 times. Six of the so-called historical books have the monarchy as their main subject matter, including the aptly named first and second books of kings. The life of one particular king, David, occupies more space than that of any other figure, including the great patriarchs, Abraham and Moses. Kingship is presented in the early books of the Old Testament as both the popularly requested and the divinely appointed answer to the anarchy and disorder prevailing under the judges who ruled the people of Israel for the first 250 years or so after their arrival in the promised land of Canaan around 1250 BCE. The book of Judges emphasises the corruption and lawlessness under this form of government, noting, In those days there was no king of Israel. Everyone did what was right in his eyes. The inauguration of the Israelite monarchy, which took place around 1020 BCE, is described in the book of Samuel. A crucial role is played by Samuel, the last of the great judges, who becomes the first kingmaker and presides over the coronations of both Saul and David, the first two Israelite kings. Samuel is portrayed as prophet, seer and intermediary between Yahweh, or God, and the people, to whom the elders of Israel come asking for a king to govern us all like the nations. Samuel puts this request to Yahweh, who is initially reluctant to accede to it, and tells him to spell out to the people the dangers of kingship in terms of the accretion of private wealth and military might. These warnings are ignored, however, 
and the people continue to insist that they must have a king to govern us and go out before us and fight our battles. When Samuel reports this to God, he is told, hearken to their voice and make them a king. If there is a certain initial unease in God's mind about the desirability of kingship, the institution is subsequently given divine blessing, but the king being seen as God's chosen one, Messiah in Hebrew or Christos in Greek. There is a sense of partnership between Yahweh and the chosen people of Israel in the making of kings. The emphasis is on a three-way covenant between God, king and people. This concept of covenant is one of the most distinctive and central features of Israelite kingship, as is the idea that the monarch mediates and represents divine rule and stands for justice, fairness and truth. During and after the long period of exile that followed the Babylonian captivity of Israel in 597 BCE, Jews increasingly pinned their hopes on the future coming of a new Messiah, a king from the house of David, raised up by God to deliver Jerusalem from where he would reign, restoring and reuniting Israel and bringing about a new world order of justice and righteousness, as looked forward to and promised in the Psalms and the writings of the prophets. The theme of kingship, so fully explored in the Old Testament, continues to figure prominently in the New Testament, although its central focus is on the kingdom of God, inaugurated and proclaimed by Jesus, with its dethroning of the rich and powerful and exaltation of the humble and meek. All four of the Gospel writers use royal titles and monarchical allusions in their descriptions of Jesus. He is identified as the anointed king, the Messiah or Christos, leading his followers to be known as Christians. From his birth in Bethlehem in the house and family of King David and his baptism where he is identified by God as his beloved son, to his trial and crucifixion for being king of the Jews, the royal theme runs as a clear thread through his life and death. Jesus himself redefines the concept of kingship. This is signalled most dramatically by his choice of a donkey on which to make his entry into Jerusalem on the first Palm Sunday. He deliberately opts for an animal associated with humility, humiliation even, rather than a proud charger or stallion more fitting for a king on a triumphal progress. In washing his disciples' feet on the first Maundy Thursday, he further shows that he is, in Graham Kendrick's memorable words, the servant king, displaying meekness as well as majesty. When Pontius Pilate repeatedly asks him whether he is indeed the king of the Jews, he gives the cryptic answer, you have said so. Jesus never repudiates the idea of kingship, but gives it a wholly new meaning of humble servanthood, which has been the inspiration for Christian monarchy ever since. How Faith Helped the Monarchy Flex by Ian Bradley Christian monarchy has played a central part in the history of the British Isles, promoting the rule of order, justice and mercy 
in conformity with the values of the Kingdom of God and cementing a close alliance between the institutions of Crown and Church. Both these aspects are well illustrated in the life and deeds of the first English king to convert to Christianity. Ethelbert, who ruled in Kent from 587 to 616, seems to have come to faith through a combination of the influence of his wife Bertha, the daughter of a Frankish Christian king, and the preaching of St Augustine, who arrived in Thanet in 597, having been sent from Rome by Pope Gregory. According to one account, 10,000 of Ethelbert's subjects followed him in converting and underwent a mass baptism. Among his first actions as a Christian king were to issue the first set of laws in the English language and to grant land to Augustine on which to build an abbey, which later became Canterbury Cathedral. Exemplified by such figures as Arthur and Alfred, Christian kingship brought new titles as well as new responsibilities for British rulers. The first to be appropriated was that of ruling through the grace of God, or Deo Gratia, the idea that is still expressed on every coin of the realm through the abbreviation DG. The late 8th century Anglo-Saxon king Offa described himself as by the divine controlling grace, king of the Mercians. From the mid-10th century, several English kings also began styling themselves Christ's vicar or deputy. Edgar, Alfred's great-grandson, who ruled from 957 to 975, so described himself when founding a new monastery at Winchester in 966. Some years later, Ethelred II stated that the king must be regarded not only as the head of the church, but also as a vicar of Christ among Christian folk. The Middle Ages saw the flowering of the cult of Christian monarchy as both splendid and servant-like, pious and chivalrous, full of knightly virtue, gung-ho triumphalism and miraculous powers, as exemplified in the widespread belief that the king's touch could cure those suffering from scrofula. While medieval monarchs cultivated magnificent splendour, they also espoused the theme of the servant king and acknowledged their utter dependence on God's grace. Both these elements were reflected in the civic triumphs staged around Epiphany, or Advent, for the entrance of monarchs into cities of their realms, with the king being portrayed as the type of Christ and the queen as the bearer of heavenly glory. Deliberately modelled on Jesus' entry into Jerusalem, they served as a reminder of the journey to be undertaken by all souls, including royal ones, towards death and the throne of heaven. The crown played a crucial part in the English Reformation, which was initiated by Henry VIII with the help of his loyal lieutenant, Thomas Cranmer. Together, they created what was effectively a nationalised state church of a moderately Protestant hue with a monarch at its head, bishops and a conservative liturgy in English. Subsequent sovereigns made their influence felt on the emerging Church of England, with Edward VI steering it in a more Protestant direction and playing a key role in the preparation of the first English prayer book of 1549, and Elizabeth steadying it to produce the Anglican Via Media, which has remained one of its distinguishing characteristics to this day. The monarch's headship of the Church of England 
was a key part of the Reformation settlement. It was established in the 1534 Supremacy Act, which declared King Henry VIII the only supreme head in earth of the Church of England, with full authority to intervene in its affairs. Elizabeth I modified the monarch's title from Supreme Head to Supreme Governor, which it has remained ever since. Alongside it goes the title of Defender of the Faith, represented on coins as FD, originally given to Henry VIII by the Pope in 1521 for his defence of the traditional sacraments of the Catholic Church against the novel teaching of Martin Luther. Although revoked after the Reformation, it has continued to be used by and about all monarchs since, although its meaning has never been precisely defined. Stuart monarchs tended to push Christian monarchy in a more absolutist direction, being enamoured of the doctrine of the divine right of kings, although they also did much to forward Christianity in their realms. James VI of Scotland and I of England made a particularly valuable contribution in his patronage of the version of the Bible which still bears his name and is also known as the authorised version. He was adamant that it should not be a narrow reflection of a single theological position, but rather in a renicon or instrument of peace, breadth and moderation in the new United Kingdom over which he reigned. The so-called Glorious Revolution of 1688-9, when James II was deposed because of his Catholicism and perceived absolutism, and William of Orange, invited by Parliament to occupy the vacant throne, effectively signalled the triumph of covenant theory of monarchy over that of divine right. The constitutional settlement that followed it rested on a concept of limited monarchy and was based on an essentially secular concept of social and civil contract. However, neither the Reformation notion of the godly prince ruling the godly commonwealth nor the close connections between crown and church were swept away. Indeed, they were strengthened with the role of the United Kingdom monarch as protector of Protestantism being expressed in the accession and coronation oaths still taken today. Christian monarchy developed in 19th and 20th century Britain to focus much more on philanthropy, civic duty and spiritual leadership demonstrated through attendance at religious services and public exhortation. The close relationship between the crown and the churches and especially the Church of England, has remained strong while being extended in recent decades to other faith groups as the monarch has increasingly taken on the role of defender of faith. Television has made the monarch's Christmas Day broadcast a significant national moment of spiritual reflection. Making Sense of the Coronation's Oaths, Oils and Acclamations by Ian Bradley Coronations point to the sacred nature of the United Kingdom monarchy. Packed with religious symbolism and imagery, they exude mystery, bind together church and state through the person of the monarch and clearly proclaim the derivation of all power and authority from God and the Christian basis on which government is exercised and justice administered. 
At their coronations, kings and queens are not simply crowned and enthroned, but consecrated, set apart and anointed, dedicated to God and invested with sacerdotal garb and symbolic regalia. Here, if anywhere, we find the divinity which, as Shakespeare observed more than 400 years ago, hedges the British throne. The United Kingdom is the only country which still marks the accession of a new monarch with a coronation. Of the other European monarchies, Belgium, Luxembourg and the Netherlands have never held coronations. Spain discontinued them in 1492. They were not revived when the monarchy was restored there in 1975. Denmark in 1849 and Sweden in 1873. Norway abolished coronations in 1908, although since then, its monarchs have undergone a ceremony of consecration or blessing at Nidaros Cathedral in Trondheim, with the royal regalia present in the church, but not used in the ceremony. Consecrations are religious services rather than constitutional ceremonies. While details have been subtly adapted over the centuries, the basic format has essentially remained the same for over a thousand years. The crowning of the monarch is just one of several distinct elements in the service. Others include recognition by the assembled congregation representing the people of their new sovereign, administration of oaths, anointing with holy oil, investiture with the royal regalia and celebration of holy communion. All these elements are present in the earliest surviving order for the coronation of an English monarch, prepared by St Dustin as Archbishop of Canterbury for the Anglo-Saxon King Edgar in 973. Edgar's coronation, which took place in Bath Abbey, included many features found in all subsequent coronations. Held on Whit Sunday, the traditional day for ordinations to the priesthood, it laid considerable emphasis on the theme of consecration and the priestly aspects of kingship, exemplified by the wearing of priestly robes. Anointed and crowned by Dunstan, Edgar was entrusted with the protection and supervision of the church and graced with the titles Rex Dei Grazia, King by the Grace of God, and Vicarus Dei, Vicar of God. His wife, Elsfrith, was anointed and crowned as queen. This practice of a double crowning and anointing was followed in the coronations of all subsequent married kings and queens, as it will be with Charles and Camilla on the 6th of May. Edgar was led into Bath Abbey by two bishops, as Charles will be as he enters Westminster Abbey, which has been used for all English coronations since 1066. Before crowning, he was required to swear three oaths, which form the basis of those still taken by every British monarch. As now framed, they include promises to adhere to the rule of law and the principles of justice and mercy, and to maintain the laws of God, the Protestant religion and the Church of England. Having taken these oaths, the monarch is anointed with holy oil, a further sign of being set apart and consecrated in the manner of a priest. Edgar's coronation included the celebration of Mass, and it remains the case that the coronation is embedded in a celebration of Holy Communion. Dunstan's order clearly established the Church's control over royal inauguration rites in England, and specifically the key role of the Archbishop of Canterbury in presiding over the ceremony. 
In the sermon that he preached at a second coronation over which he presided, that of Ethelred the Unready at Kingston-Bon-Thames in 979, he preached on the duties of a consecrated king, describing him as the shepherd over his people and reminding him that while ruling justly would earn him worship in this world, as well as God's mercy, any departure from his duties would lead to punishment at doomsday. Rooted in tradition as they are, coronations still have the power to connect with the popular spiritual and religious instincts that remain strong, if often hidden, in our so-called post-Christian society. In a much-quoted article on Queen Elizabeth II's coronation in 1953, two sociologists, Edward Schills and Michael Young, described it as the ceremonial occasion for the affirmation of the moral values by which the society lives. It was an act of national communion and an intensive contact with the sacred. They noted that it was frequently spoken of as an inspirational and a rededication of the nation. The ceremony had touched the sense of the sacred in the population, heightening a sense of solidarity in both families and communities. They pointed to examples of reconciliation between long-feuding neighbours and family members brought about by the shared experience of watching the ceremony together on television. We have recently witnessed something of this sense of national communion and intensive contact with the sacred in the public reaction to the death of Elizabeth II, as shown by the numbers who came out to witness the progress of the late Queen's coffin on its last journeys, and to file past it in the High Kirk of St Giles in Edinburgh and Westminster Hall. Ultimately, Christian monarchy points beyond itself to the majesty, mystery and vulnerability of God. It is a lonely, noble and sacrificial calling. What our sovereign needs and deserves most is our loyal and heartfelt prayers. As we prepare for the King's coronation, we could do well to reflect on and respond to the request that his mother made before hers. You will be keeping it as a holiday, but I want to ask you all, whatever your religion may be, to pray for me on that day, to pray that God may give me wisdom and strength to carry out the solemn promises I shall be making, and that I may faithfully serve them and you all the days of my life. The Seen and Unseen of the Coronation Regalia by Ian Bradley In the course of his coronation on May the 6th, Charles III will be presented, the technical term is invested, with a number of ancient objects and clothed in various special garments. Known collectively as the Coronation Regalia, all have deep symbolic significance and point to the Christian basis of the ceremony and of the British monarchy. The crown which will be placed on the king's head by the Archbishop of Canterbury is, of course, the most splendid and iconic symbol of majesty. Like the other items of the coronation regalia, it was specially made for the coronation of Charles II in 1661 to replace the medieval regalia, which had been broken up and melted down during the time of the Commonwealth and Protectorate when England was without a monarchy in the mid-17th century. 
Known as an Edward's crown, it replaced a medieval original, which is said to have been made for King Edward the Confessor, a saintly 11th century king who built the original Westminster Abbey and was officially canonised as a saint in 1161. Weighing nearly five pounds and made of solid gold, its rim is set with precious stems and from it spring two arches symbolising sovereignty. Where they meet is a golden orb surmounted by a jewelled cross, a reminder of the cross of Christ and his sovereignty over all. Placing St Edward's crown on the monarch's head, the archbishop traditionally says, God crown you with a crown of glory and righteousness, that having a right faith and manifold fruit of good works, you may obtain the crown of an everlasting kingdom by the gift of him whose kingdom endureth for ever. The crown is not the only conspicuous symbol of Christ's power and sovereignty that will make an appearance at the coronation. The orb, which is customarily put into the monarch's right hand before his crowning, is the oldest emblem of Christian sovereignty, used by later Roman emperors and Anglo-Saxon kings. Ball of gold, surmounted by a large cross thickly studded with diamonds and set in an amethyst base, it acts as a reminder, in the archbishop's words, that the whole world is subject to the power and empire of Christ. Its first appearances in Britain are on a seal of Edward Confessor in use between 1053 and 1065 in a depiction of the crowning of King Harold in the Bayer Tapestry. It is significant that the complex planning of Charles III's coronation is codenamed Operation Golden Orb. The ring, in Latin annulus, which is next traditionally placed on the fourth finger of the right hand, has often been specifically made to fit the new sovereign, although Elizabeth II used an existing one inlaid with a ruby and engraved with the St George's cross. It is presented to symbolise the marriage of monarch and country and was known in medieval times as the wedding ring of England. The final pieces of regalia with which the monarch is traditionally invested before being crowned are the rod and sceptre, known in Latin as the baculus and the sceptrus. These may originally have derived from the rod and staff mentioned in Psalm 23. The solid gold sceptre has since 1910 contained the largest clear-cut diamond in the world, part of the massive Cullinan diamond found in the Transvaal in 1905. It is surmounted by a cross, which stands for kingly power and justice. The longer rod, also made of solid gold, is surmounted by a dove, signifying equity and mercy. There is also deep spiritual symbolism in the traditional coronation garments worn by the sovereign. Based on ecclesiastical vestments, they are designed to emphasise the priestly and episcopal character of monarchy, and are put on immediately after the anointing, which is carried out with the king or queen wearing a simple linen shirt to symbolise humility. The colobium syndonis, a sleeveless garment made of white linen with a lace border, is to all intents and purposes a priest's alb or surplus. Over it is put the super tunica, a close-fitting long coat fashioned in rich cloth of gold, identical to a priest's dalmatic, a long wide-sleeved tunic. A girdle of the same material, put round the waist, has a gold buckle and hangers on which to suspend the sword with which the monarch is girded. 
a cloth of gold stole is placed over the shoulders. At a later stage, the sovereign is traditionally vested in the imperial mantle, or pallium regale, a richly embroidered cope, similar to those worn by bishops. These garments emphasise that, like priests and bishops at their ordinations and consecrations, monarchs are set apart and consecrated to the service of God in their coronations, which are first and foremost religious services. This aspect is further emphasised by the framing of the coronation service in the context of a service of Holy Communion, according to the order laid down in the Book of Common Prayer. Some will dismiss the ancient regalia with which the monarch is invested, which have also traditionally included golden spurs, bracelets and swords, as anachronistic medieval mumbo-jumbo out of keeping with our modern world. Yet they symbolise in powerful visual terms the sacramental nature of our Christian monarchy, which points beyond itself to the majesty and mystery of God. In the words of a former Archbishop, Cosmo Gordon Lang, writing just before he presided at the coronation of King George VI, these ancient rites and ceremonies demonstrate that the ultimate source and sanction of all true civil rule and obedience is the will and purpose of God, that behind the things that are seen and temporal are the things that are unseen and eternal. Thank you for listening. Remember to subscribe to this podcast to get more curated articles from Seen and Unseen Aloud. We hope you discover a world that is greater, more full of meaning and sense than you ever imagined.